Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally, and it's all because of my incredible guests. I'm just here to facilitate the conversation. I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game, and they come on this show willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. These are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with us the essence of peak performance. And today our topic is storytelling for business. Storytelling has always been an important part of any successful business. It helps to engage customers and create a powerful connection between the company and the customer. And storytelling is a great way to introduce products and services as well as to explain their purpose. It can be used to establish an emotional connection with customers increase brand loyalty, and build relationships. And the power of storytelling for business is undeniable. It provides a unique opportunity to draw in current customers and attract new guests, or new, uh, new customers, rather. And my guest today, Will, Will, I know I asked you this, is Saklos, right? Yes, correct. Very oh, good. right. It's spelled very differently, and I'll get you to explain this. <laughs> Go ahead. But anyway, Will is a former, we're having a little bit of trouble speaking across one another, so I'm trying to be careful, but bear with us. So Will is a former senior creative executive and story consultant at Pixar Animation Studios. That's a story all by itself. And in addition to providing story consulting and story repair on Finding Nemo, Monsters, Inc., I love that story, love the movie, and Ratatouille, an open season Will taught his singular story development course to directors, heads of story, story artists, and top executives at Pixar, Sony, and Disney, and in publicly available classes in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he was discovered by Andrew Stanton and recruited to Pixar. Well, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm excited to have you here. I love storytelling. I think one of, a friend of yours. Uh, Karen Eber was also here just recently talking about storytelling. A friend of mine who I adore, Ken Atchity, and I think I introduced him to you, storytelling, story merchant. This is a topic that I'm really passionate about because to me, when you're telling stories and you're telling them properly, that shows such authenticity. Authentic. Okay, help me out. Authentic <laughs> story. So, it's Monday, right? Yeah. <laughs> Authenticity, there's the word. But listen, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Denise. It's really great to be with you. Okay, in the tell me very quickly, Karen Eber, you're going to be in her book? Yes. Um um she has a she has a great uh a book, a big book coming out in twenty twenty three about storytelling and her focus is mine has been a little bit more more actually you know applied to 
film, uh, feature films and, and dramatic storytelling, but the over, her book, I think, is more for storytelling in business, but the principles overlap quite a bit. I mean, the, the principles of sound storytelling, I think, um, are, are universal across, across platforms. In other words, for me, if it's live action or animation or if it's, you know, a business application, the principles of great storytelling are the same. And that makes sense. And, you know, it's interesting because I've been in business since 2001. I just realized that the other day, well, recently, and it occurred to me that I've been in business over 20 years, and that shocked me because when you're doing <laughs> things that you love, you're like, oh, you know, I need to get better. I can do this. You know, I can, and you're always growing and, you know, building, and then all of a sudden you realize, I've been doing this for a long time, but I'm still growing. I'm still build, building. But authenticity and storytelling to me has not been covered enough. I mean, we're, we're changing as we present ourselves on the Internet, as business people mm-hmm. or entrepreneurs, solopreneurs. We're having to find our voice, which is very different than what we were taught back in the day. You know, just tell people what you want them to know. You know, give them all the information, bury them in information that they don't care about, like you're, you know, what kind of degree do you have? I have one. You have one. We don't care. Nobody cares. They just want to know what we can do for them. And storytelling, to me, is just such a critical part of that, authentic storytelling. Yeah, that reminds me of um, um, how I actually got to Pixar. Um, and I think it had to do with the choice to put my voice out there to kind of take a risk. I had... Um, um decided well i had been playing i had been playing music not on a not on a like grand level like more like in bar bands you know playing guitar stumbling in at three in the morning i decided to go back to school and i got my master's degree in literature and um i started i got a job teaching at academy of art in san francisco so uh and i was writing um, screenplays. I had a script that was a Sundance Screenwriters Lab finalist. And so I would write in the morning and then I would go and I would teach at Academy of Art uh, in the afternoon. It's around noon. And uh, and then I would walk up the hill to the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco and wait tables from four to midnight. And I did this for uh, for a while. And while I was teaching this course, I uh, I had a friend that taught screenwriting there, and I thought, well, I could teach that. I got a shiny new master's degree. I've written a script that had some success, and I had an interview, and the head of the school, the dean, said, you know what you'd be good at teaching is graduate aesthetics, and I thought, of course I would. I had no idea what aesthetics was. So I went, I had to look it up as the philosophy of art, but putting, so I used everything plays and movies and and poems and music and everything about art to kind of get at what it was about, particularly dramatic arts. And I developed a, a theory of dramatic construction that was really workable and felt really true. So I started teaching these sort of guerrilla courses on my own where I just rent like a room at a, a meeting room at a <clears throat> hotel or 
or um, there's a place Fort Mason in, um, in San Francisco where you could rent classrooms. And I sent out flyers back in the, those days. Um, you know, you didn't just have a big long text list or even much of an email list. We actually sent physical flyers. So I picked up, I had them to pick up the local paper and saw that um, A Bug's Life had just come out. And there was a picture in the names of the four primary creative people at Pixar. And I just, I I got the address over in Point Richmond and I, where they were, and I sent flyers to each of them, uh, the top creative people in the company. And I wrote, hey, you know, it was John Lasseter, Pete Doctor, and Andrew Stanton and Joe Ramps, and I, you know, wrote on the flyer, hey, Joe, hey, Andrew, you know, I just, uh, congratulations on a bug's life, um, doing this course, and just wanted to let you know, and blah, 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 like I knew them. They didn't know me from Adam. And I got a call from, I got an email from one of them, Andrew Stanton, who, had, who was a brilliant writer-director, who wrote almost all the early scripts, at, uh, including Toy Story, and directed Finding Nemo and Wally, um, and he came down and took my course, and um, in the city, which I started teaching on my nights off from the restaurant. So after eight weeks, he handed me his card and said, uh, "Call me," and um, I did, and they brought me in and interviewed me, and that's how I went, uh, how I became the. Uh, story consultant and, and then senior creative um, director at Pixar within about a month or so. And that's when I gave my notice at the restaurant. I was just going to ask, did you quit the Ritz-Carlton? It's one of my favorite <laughs> places in San Francisco, truly. When, was, every time I would go, I'm sorry, see, we're, we're cutting no, up each other. I'm, go ahead. Oh, I was just say it was a great job. There were great people, and and everything was you know top shelf, and it had to be done right. And it was the highest ranked um, Zagat uh, restaurant rated in a big restaurant city back in those days in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Every time I would go home to visit my mom, we always went to the Ritz Carlton. Always, it was just one of those mother daughter things. Oh, uh, please. She's gone now, but and I don't go back to San Francisco if I can avoid it. But it's just, it, I used to love going there these days, not so much, for just so many reasons, but I have very mm-hmm. fond memories of the city. Mm-hmm. It's a really fun city and uh, cosmopolitan and, and mm-hmm. fabulous culture and beautiful, yeah. It is. It really is. So you have done going from San Francisco to to Louisiana. Let's go there because you did field research, and there's a little town, y'all. I promise you, called Cutoff, Louisiana, and you did the field research for the Princess and the Frog, where an aspiring Buddhist kills half the creatures in Bayou Lafourche. I got that. Was neat. How do you go from um, San Francisco to Bayou Lafourche? You know. Well, we were we initiated that story, the Princess and the Frog story at Pixar, and we sent it over. Eventually, went to Disney to to complete it, and and so I was 
uh, the top development person, I was doing the research for it. And um, I had made several trips to New Orleans, um, which I loved. And, and I got to meet uh, Ava K. Jones, who was the voodoo priestess of, of uh, New Orleans, who was just a lovely, generous, spiritual woman. And then I met, we met a woman, uh, Anne Galjur, out here, who came to Pixar and did one of her plays. She was from a Cajun family, and she did plays about this great flood in the bayou, and just fascinating. And she was so great, she arranged for us to go and stay with her family and cut off Louisiana, which you're the only person that's heard of it. And, um, Pretty much. Although, I have to tell you, I mentioned Ken Atchity earlier. He was born here in Louisiana, so I'm sure he knows oh, where Cutoff is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and these, it was just the, just the loveliest family, the Galjours. They could not have been more generous. And, um, and we got the full experience. It took a few other Pixar people. Um, and uh, including the president at Capitol, he came along. Um, and we, um, the the father, his name was Carol, he was a just this lovely man and a great storyteller, one day took us out uh, on the bayou fishing. And uh, so, so this is where we add in at this point in my life, I was, I was really trying to become a Buddhist. I was studying. I was going to classes like three nights a week and and weekend um, services and and um, that's just where I was in my life. And so we go out fishing and and I was I you know I just I wasn't going to be a bad guest. And I was the only one that caught any fish. And um, Carol kept baiting my hook with these old shrimp and I, every time I just pull in another fish one after another after another after another and I'm like oh my god and later in the week we decided it was the next night to take them out the gauchos out for dinner and we had to go I don't know it seemed like a long way it's like 20-30 miles through the bayou pitch black, no no lights, no nothing except this road, two-lane road, and we had this rented SUV that we got the bright lights on, and I'm driving. And it seemed like every 500 feet, I'd run over a turtle or a frog or a snake, and, and these bugs are hitting the windshield. They're bouncing off these moths the size of hummingbirds and I'm going I'm just oh, oh my god I reverted quickly to my Christian roots and said oh dear god in heaven please don't let me kill another living thing today and that's what I recall about about Biolafourche well and the thing we you know we joke that we have mosquitoes that will lift your car up and haul off with them I'm not sure that's we're really cool. joking everything around here Every insect, every critter, they're all huge. I don't know what that's all about. Maybe there's something in the ground that just really feeds them. But, yeah, you're right. It's, there's, yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of crittering happening around this part I'll of the say. country. We have squirrels. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, rarely, because normally I see them coming. But 
I remember about a year ago I accidentally ran over a squirrel, and I'm still upset over that. I'm like, mm-hmm. all I, could, I stopped and said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. So on one of the back roads, I was taking my dog to get her bath and, you know, her nails done, and I hit a squirrel. It broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Mostly yeah, because I have yeah. them all over my backyard. I mean, you know, they're my buddies out there. Mm-hmm. Well, so much wildlife down there, and I think because you there know, there's is. so much, seemed like so much pristine country where they just thrive. And I don't know, if, you know, it's because because they're left, you know, to 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 just thrive, or it's the environment with the, you know, uh, the humidity and the bayou, and but. Uh, Oh, no, of course, we have the swamp. You know, we have the Atchafalaya yeah. Swamp, which is, you know, second only to the Everglades. It's a big swamp. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's right down the road from me, too. So, yeah. I mean, you've, it's it's an interesting part of the country. It's, you know, it's humid most of the time. I mean, we ha- it's so humid here, and it's so wet that I tell anybody, listen, Southern women, we don't get wrinkled because we don't ever dry out. We just <laughs> try to, to get wrinkled. But I'm telling you, the humidity. And right now, I was mentioning to you in the, in the green room, it's cold. We get about mm, nine or ten in a row days of winter. We, you know, and we're lucky if we get them all in one go. But because mm. of the humidity, when it gets cold, it drops down to about 40 degrees. It will go straight to the bone. You don't get warm. Mm-hmm. You have to take hot showers to warm back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but it's I an interesting that. part of the country. So when you and I'm glad that you were able to experience that. So, but but let's go because we talked about the Ritz Carlton. We talk about Bayou Lafourche, and where did you go for dinner, by the way? Do you remember? On that particular trip, you know, I don't. I I. I, it was not like the Ritz Carlton. I'll tell you that it was no. more like you know, <laughs> it was it was more like like um, uh, like a chain restaurant. I don't remember what it was, but it was still still like a big deal. There's just not much around there, no. at least the, that we knew about. There might have been some yeah. hidden gems, you know, but um, but they appreciated it, and it was it was fun. Oh, I'm sure. One thing about this part of the country, the food is spectacular. And you're talking about turtles and, you know, squirrel. Look, I'm in the middle of Cajun country. If it doesn't get away quick enough, it winds up in the, on the table. So just be warned. It's true. <laughs> they won't cook anything. Okay, so you went yeah. from – go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, it just reminded me of talking with this family. They were telling – you know, let's say great storytellers, or one of the things that stuck in my mind was that, you know, they would barter and they would go, you know, to the dentist or some service that they needed, and they would bring, you know, turtle soup or or, or a bag of turtles, or you know, that that would be their payment, and um, it was just, uh, you know, fascinating. Um, we went to a we went to a, it took us to way in the bayou to this place where they raised albino alligators. I don't even think this was legal, but they kept them in these big, 
tanks that I think were dark, but and we're in the middle of nowhere, and I was just so I just got such a kick out of meeting this the man that's that was his business, and he had this you know real thick Cajun accent and sweet man. And I'll just never forget in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the woods, you know, he pulls up and he's got this big Escalade and he cuts out and he has bib overalls on and they are pressed like from the dry cleaner. And he's wearing a Rolex that he's must have weighed about 10 pounds. And we're shuffling through uh, all this mud and he opens up this tank and there is this slew of big white alligators ready to snap at us and um so i had all these great great and uh moments in louisiana and then we had the best food and best uh fantastic music in new orleans and just it was just a wonderful just love that part of the country if you ever get the opportunity you need to come in the spring when we have festival international louisiana which runs pretty much concurrently with the jazz fest so you can oh, run back okay. and forth down the highway from Lafayette to New Orleans. Eat yourself silly. Listen to some of the best <laughs> music in the world. I'll send you some links. It's coming up pretty soon. Okay. But you're talking about, idea. oh, I think you would really, really enjoy it. So what makes a story great? This is, I mean, you're telling some terrific stories. And because I live here and because I've seen pretty much everything that you're talking about, I'm actually rewriting what you're telling me in my own experiences. Isn't that what hmm. makes a great story? Because you're inviting people to go, ooh, I've done that before, and kind of overlay it with their own experiences, or ooh, I want to do that. Where do I find more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, I think there's, you know, when... Uh, I mean, I think of this in terms of like film stories, but I think it's, it's again, universal. Um, there's a couple of things about, I mean, one of the things we always talked about was, you know, finding the universal idea and, you know, getting people involved emotionally right away. And, um, you know, great stories are about something. They're about something we can relate to. Um, and in, Toy Story, for example, you know, it's about being uh, Woody was the center of attention and it was akin to being, you know, the firstborn in your family or the most popular kid in school and maybe more universal being the firstborn and then, you know, your little brother or sister comes along and then you're not, you're not the primary um, person, and, you know, uh, where you thought you were, your status has changed, and you have to adjust to that. And that was a big deal for Woody, and the idea of being um, left behind, and then how to create a friendship. And then in um, Toy Story 2, at the heart of that was the idea of mortality, about, you know, our, our antagonist was the toy collector. And this idea came up... Um, then was it better to be um, uh, to to love and be loved, knowing that that will come to an end? And this is in the life of toys, but it relates to everybody. Or is it better to be try to be 
um, uh, remain, you know, untouched, unmarked, as the toy collector says, you know, mint, the mint condition, mint in the box, and or or to you know to to give in, give your heart fully, knowing that at some point that love, that relationship will come to an end, um, and and that's our our scenario is growing when that love partner, the child grows into adulthood and that love affair with the toy ends. But that can apply to all of us. And I think that gives weight to stories, things that we can relate to, even if we don't spell them out, we feel them deeply. And there needs to be that sense of truth about them. And that's what we respond to primarily. And see, that that makes sense. I have when you're reading a book or when you're watching a movie and you know I'll be honest with you I'm not a movie person or a TV person I drive Ken Achety nuts because this is what y'all do I was like I'm sorry I'm just you have to really grab my attention but when I tell you I love Monsters Inc you mentioned Wally Mm -hmm. I love that but they make me think they grab my attention I'm listening and at some level and I'll revisit it you know down the road Think, oh, I, you know, I've heard that or saw that in the movie or read it in a book, and all of a sudden I'm off on a different path. Going, huh? Now that makes sense. Mm. But aren't these creative? Mm. When you're writing these things, aren't they meant to stay with you at some level? Isn't that what oh, you want? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the ultimate um, is to have them touch people's hearts that, um, you know, that they, in a creative way, align with people's feelings and experience, you know, in a way that's different, that lets them see their own lives in a different way, perhaps. Um, And I think there's, you know, there's things that go into that. I think that, that, you know, the group I worked with um, at Pixar in those early days, and I would say that I was very fortunate because... I believe that when I worked at Pixar, I think that was the second golden age of animation. Um, We had a string of extraordinary, we made a string of extraordinary hit movies, including Toy Story, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, WALL-E, Up. And each one of those was deeply felt, beautifully expressed, and unique. And um, I think it was akin to Disney's golden age and started in 1937 with Pinocchio, and then Snow White, Fantasia, Bumbo, Bambi, all unique, all deeply felt and beautifully expressed so that, you know, people felt what those movies were about and were moved by them. And um, one of the things I realized well, part part of this comes from the people that create them that that they they have a, a a good heart and they have the willingness. And we were in a company that supported this the the idea of giving space to getting it right, uh, iteration after iteration, and, until you know um, we have that ah that's it that's it I feel it and. Um, um, so that was something special. See, I'm fascinated by this because I've 
I've watched most of the movies that you're talking about. I have not seen, there's a couple of them that I just, I haven't seen, but over the years I've watched just about all of them and they've all stuck with me. Mm. Monsters, Inc. Mm. is honestly, I think, one of my favorites. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Well, and you that's talked, what... we talked in, in our uh, our pre-interview about how to repair a broken story, and your case study was Monsters, Inc. And I, I kept thinking, how could that have been broken? It's perfect. So tell me how you had to repair that story. That's interesting because, you know, we we would never say the movie comes out perfect, but we go we get those all those movies were you know those movies I mentioned I think you know turned out great not only were they huge box office hits but people loved them and and they were critically acclaimed as well but in every one of those there was a point and because they took years to make I mean in the early days they took three sometimes four years to make. And we we spent at least a year, sometimes two years, just getting the story right, which is really critical because it's so um, easy. We had the best we had the best um, uh, story artists, a storyboard artist that would can create um, uh, visual gags that were so entertaining. We had the best character designers, and we could get the best actors and composers and we learned that we knew that um, um, you could have all of those fabulous elements but if the story itself is not sound from start to finish and through to its core all those fabulous elements combined won't turn an, an average or okay story into a great story or an okay movie into a great movie and um I forget your question. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, you know, how you have a case study, how do you repair a broken story? But oh, but I want to go back, once you tell me about that, I want to go back to what you just said about composers. And I'm thinking John Williams, Star Wars. Look, I only watched that movie once, but I know all the music. Don't we all? Yes. Yes. That's really powerful. And, um, um, and part of it is that um, you know, in that film was just so so perfectly put together and structured. And I think you know that it, the you know the music on its own, you know, it's fabulous. But married to those moments, those heroic moments, when it really things, it just sinks into your bones, and and it is unforgettable. But I think without the story. Um, experience it with the story it's not the same even though the music is it's great. Not. It's not. Hogwarts I mean I was listening I was turned on YouTube the other day and I'm a big Harry Potter fan those movies I watch <laughs> I watch them every year I have an entire month mm. I watch the, the whole series but there's a YouTube video that has all of the you know, different sections you know here you're in the great room here you're in Gryffindor and all the music that's in there and I can be washing dishes, I can be doing, you know, fighting with the cat, who knows, and I'll hear <laughs> something, oh, and I'm right back in that movie. But you're right, it's that yeah. moment in that movie that I identify because of just a few chords of music. It's important. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I think it's just such a powerful combination 
of um, the the visual, not just the visual, the story, the emotional story moment, and the music that supports that and amplifies that uh, is just very powerful. It is. So I'm not going to interrupt again, I think, I promise. <laughs> Pixar's Monsters, how was it broken? Okay, well, um, uh, that may sound a little harsh, but that's uh, oh, uh, this is what I meant to say, and this is this is part of the story of of this is that we set up when you mentioned all those films, you know, came out like perfect. There was <clears throat> there was a point in every single one where we looked at their where we put them together on what we called on reels, where there was like hand drawn animation and we called scratch voices where we had you know, employees, and we had lots of hands there that would do the voices of characters. And so we could see the movie on screen. It was like a comic book version of it and and really work it and refine it, and it was a great process. But in every single one of those movies, there was a point where, um, like John Lasseter would say or Andrew would say, you know, this is just one big pile of crap. You know, we're just, uh, this is, Ouch. we're no I mean, every single one. And, again, it was that willingness to get it right and have the people that cared enough to get it right and somehow inside have the instincts and the heart to know when it was right. So on Monsters, we, um, you know, we would go to these screenings all the way through, you know, which were from where it was very, every movie from was very sort of this crude rendering to where it was partially finished, it was mostly finished. Um, and we had, a, in those days, we were, we had a partnership with Disney. They helped with financing, and then they were a great distribution partner. So we had to run things by them to get final approval um, um, before they, you know, took over and marketed and distributed the film. And so they had already approved Monsters at the point where it was, and I looked at it and I thought, you know, there's something something off here. And I I had a conversation, I was meeting with Ed Catmull, the president, who was a brilliant scientist, and and um, one of the things great about and Steve Jobs, you know, had bought owned Pixar, and and um, and they just as a quick aside part of the brilliance of that like creative bubble in those years was steve had the sense to hire the best people the most talented people and then let them do what they do and and i've worked for other studios afterwards where they would hire the best people and tell them what to do and um uh, there's huge difference. And Ed always said, my job is just to like bring the right people together in teams capable of making magic. And um, so that's a little aside, but giving us the, the room to make mistakes and to, um, to get it right. So I sat down with him and he, what's going on with this movie? And I said, well, it really, you know, there's all these, great visual gags there's you know great character designs it's you know and but it's sags in the middle and ultimately it's just it doesn't add up to that much 
And, um, and he said, what can we do? And so I looked at it and studied it more and more and more. And so it was at a point where, just as a quick reminder, I mean, um, it takes movie takes place in the monsters world. And this was great, this great premise that Pete Doctor came up with about the monsters that sneak into little kids' bedrooms at night and terrify them, and that this is a job for them. And they live in this world, uh, this, and, you know, the city is called Monstropolis. And they work for a company called Monsters, Inc., and the monsters collect the screams from the kids, terrifying them, and put them in canisters. And then this is the fuel that runs their world, like gas and electric. It's like, um, you know, screen power. It's like a fossil fuel. And one of the main rules or beliefs of this world is that kids are toxic. There's like, a, you know, be a plague if one got in. And no, by no means should a kid ever get into Monstropolis. It would be a disaster. So um, they had, we got to a point where we had Sully, who was the lead character, uh, played by John Goodman, and his best friend and roommate, um, Mike Wazowski, played by Billy Crystal, they were working in the basement of Monsters, Inc., the factory company, um, wrangling canisters of scream, which, you know, were collected and then, you know, turned into fumes. And while working in the basement, they, um, Sully discovers um, that this little girl, Boo, has somehow gotten through one of the portals, the you know, the closets where the monsters come out in the bedrooms and escape <clears throat> into, into Monster World. And at first they want to, you know, they, they try to get her back and we've got to get rid of her. This is a disaster. And then he starts to care for her and fall in love with her and wants her, and then he, his goal becomes to get her home. So what was happening with the film is that they're working in the basement what they're doing him pursuing his goal of getting her home does not have a big effect on the world and that's because of that the film feels flat so in order to create um, excitement or what we call rising action which is the increase of conflict and complication or you want it to get more exciting we're just sort of putting, you know, obstacles in front of the characters, like, you know, he can't get to the door, or it's going to be seen, or something like that. <clears throat> and it's not enough. It's not enough to create sustainable rising action. And so I said, you know, part of this idea that I developed, you know, when I was teaching at Academy of Art and based my classes on was this, uh, an idea of that a realization that the action taken by a motivated character moving toward a goal has to have an effect on another character or characters with whom they have a significant relationship. And, and so there's pushback. Um, someone opposes the, the, you know, the character um, trying to achieve his goal, and that's how you get real, you know, conflict. So I said, we've got to bring Sully out of the basement, and have, he can't be anonymous. He's got to be 
like the top scarer in the company. He's got to be the Michael Jordan of scarers. Now when he has this taboo relationship with a little girl, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, he has to hide. Um, it creates all this um, genuine conflict. For one, uh, with his roommate, Mike, now as the top scarer, as the Michael Jordan of scarers, Mike relies on on Sully keeping his status as top scarer for for everything he enjoys in the in Monster World for in his uh, for his perks, for his status, for the girlfriend he has, for his, his car. I remember the car. Yes. Yes. So all that depends on things staying as they are, with Sully being the star. So. By by trying to get this girl, by caring for her and trying to get her home, he's putting all that, his status at risk. And so that creates real conflict between between Mike and Sully. And so that's a, <clears throat> so that's a source of a lot of uh, comedy and genuine conflict, and it's based in character. It's not just artificially putting in something that's blocking them. And um, so when you – when when you have this now Sully, um, uh, as he moves forward toward pursuing the goal, it generates conflict and complication organically based on character. And so and he's in conflict now with, with his company, with his society, with um, the other scares that he's you know, competing with, and ultimately he is in conflict with himself because he is going to have to come and confront himself ultimately as someone who cares for this child and has made his life and living as someone who's very, very good at terrifying children and making them unhappy and and cry. And so he has to, that's, that's how it builds. And it builds, you know, in this organic way then um, by bringing him, uh, changing this sort of character constellation. Now you, ha- now you get the, um, each one of these relationships, who, for example, like with him and Mike becomes, and him and the society and him with the head of the company, all become these story engines. Each step moving forward, deepening the relationship, creates more tension, more conflict and complication in a way that's natural, in a way that creates story energy. And And, that's a big fix. And you telling me that, I would have never... I I know the movie. I've seen it multiple times. I own it. So you're responsible (laughs) for the way that, that... that really worked out, I take it, in some degree, to some degree. Yes. I mean, I I can't, uh, you know, there's so many people that go that go into, that, I mean, so, that contribute to making these movies great. I mean, really hundreds of people. But, but yes, that was my fix. That was, um, and it was tricky. And, and fortunately, um, uh, John Lasseter was away, not only fortunately for that, but fortunately Andrew Stanton, who was, you know, one of the very top creative people there, 
got it. He understood this right away. And we were in production. We, <clears throat> we have release dates and we have tie-ins with um, products and, and, you know, that were tied to release dates and we were in production and, and um, he supported this idea to make these changes and we could make them within the, within the, you know, we didn't have to start over <clears throat> and they were so skillful, but in employing these, these changes within the context of the framework that we had and we were able to pull that out to pull that off. I mean, to bring Sully up to make him the star and, um, uh, and the other thing was strengthening the idea at the end that the analog to real life, that when a child overcomes their fear, the monster that, that would scare them that comes from the closet no longer has access to them. And that's bittersweet and has an analog in real life. As a child grows up, those monsters go away. And then the strength in that um, emotional core. So those two things really, really turned it around. And, and um, um, if you'd seen the movie the way that it was going with Sully and Mike, you know, being trying to stay out of the limelight working in the basement, it would have been funny, it would have been intriguing, but it would not have been the, the powerful movie that it became. And it is powerful. Yeah, I love a lot of what Pixar has done, and I didn't know that Steve Jobs owned it. That's new to me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I had no he was, idea. He was a great boss. Um, he would come over and come to screenings and sit in um, top-level story meetings and he would give his ideas and and um and they were no more or less important than any of the other creative people there and he really respected that process and he really got it that if you hire great people you give them the room you let them do what they do within the framework of budgets and deadlines and that was the that was one of the you know extraordinary and fabulous things about Pixar and and Apple as well. Okay, darn. I had no idea. And, you know, I'm thinking about the movies that you've talked about. I'm thinking about, you know, Hogwarts. I'm thinking about John Williams and the music. At some level, when we're watching a movie or listening to something, we know that there was an awful lot of work that went through it. But I'm wondering how many of us really understand or even think about the sheer creativity that has to pull together, has to pull together at the right time. People have to really work. They have to really listen to one another. It doesn't just, you know, a storyboard and all, it's a movie. It just, that's not how it works. I'm stunned by the level of creativity that y'all have to work with or are fortunate enough to work with. And you can make just magical things happen. Yes. And and I think, you know, the art of, you know, that Ed Catmull brought as our president was, like I said, that, you know, to to create these environments and and teams of people that could make magic and um, really have respect for that. And then we had just 
you know, some brilliant directors, you know, John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton, uh, just a brilliant director, Pete Doctor, uh, who's, who's his idea for, for Monsters, Inc. was, was the, the start of all that. And it was this great, you know, coalescing of, of, um, of creative people that wanted to have the intention to do something special. And I remember Andrew, you know, when I first got there and <clears throat> talking with him and brought up something about making movies for kids, he said, we don't make movies for kids. We make movies for ourselves. We make, for, you know, movies that, that make us laugh and cry and what we want to see. And, and if they entertain us on a high level, we believe they're going to entertain other people on, on the same high level. And um, and that was what made those films so successful was that they they worked um, uh, for different audiences. And I remember John Lasseter one time saying, "I want to make movies that I can bring my five boys to, which you know it was quite a range there. Bring my wife to, and bring my mother to, and they will all enjoy them." And I think they succeeded in that especially then. Well, and see, that makes sense to me. If I don't enjoy if you don't grab my attention in the first five, six, seven minutes, I'm gone. I leave. I have been mm-hmm. known to actually walk out of a theater. It's like, I am not going to sit around for this. It didn't matter how highly rated it was. The last movie I saw was Top Gun Maverick. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Fascinating movie. Before that, I think it was one of the um, Dalton Abbey movies. A friend of mine talked me into mm-hmm. going. That was many years ago. Before that, it was Harry Potter. I just I'm, mm-hmm. don't really enjoy being in a theater because it's people-y in there. There's people, and they talk, and they chew popcorn. <laughs> I don't like uh-huh. to be in there. But once mm-hmm. I find a movie that I really, really love, like Monsters, Inc. and Wally, I buy them. You know, I've got them mm-hmm. here. I can watch them whenever I want to. And, you know, it's funny how some of these, you know, movies just, they evoke so much emotion. I've got a kind of a snarky little exchange going on with friends on Facebook who insist that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. No, it's not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're going back and forth and they're insisting that I'm a Debbie Downer and, and that I'm wrong and I'm just saying nobody, nobody, nope, it is not a Christmas movie. But that's uh, how these things impact us and how they affect us. I tried to watch it. I like you know, almost all of the actors in it. Five minutes, mm-hmm. I was out. I was gone. Same thing with The Matrix. Hated it. You know, there are some yeah. movies that are going to grab you and others you're going to go, oh, I must have you. I'll keep you forever. Yes, and I think that, you know, I, when I talk about, um, you know, how these movies work, what makes them, what's essential. And one one thing I start with is, you know, the um, the idea of verisimilitude, the semblance of truth, a uh, reason to care about the characters and story. And it comes down to both story logic, like is this what a person would actually do or say or think, and the other part is emotional truth. Um, are the longings, fears, decisions, and actions of this character real, measured instantly by our knowing and by our depths of our by the depth of our experience as human beings? And if if the story logic is 
off from the beginning. If we, don't, if we just don't buy it, we're, we disconnect. We're disconnected from the story. And like I said, you walk out. And um, if I could just say one, switch gears for a, I tried to bring all those things to the my, the first book that I've <laughs> this is a, this is a, a, a kind of a leap of a segue. But I hope you'll allow me this. But um, apply all these same um, principles to my first um, uh, novel. It's a it's a young it's a middle grade novel that we thought of originally as an animated feature that might go to Pixar. And um, during the pandemic, my writing partner, Mark Gloria, who was a terrific screenwriter and novelist, said, well, let's write, let's write it as a book. And, um, and we did. And, and it was based on this idea of like a newspaper article I saw, I don't know, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It's a little piece in the back of the New York Times <clears throat> about the invasion of Iraq, of Baghdad a little piece about the Baghdad Zoo and how it was bombed. And um, some of the animals, a lot of them were, were killed uh, in the moment. And and some were um, taken as pets. Some were taken and eaten. Um, some uh, zoo people, the workers, came and tried to feed them for a while. And some of them escaped, and no one knows whatever happened to them. So this story called Journey to the Kingdom is the story of these one community of zoo animals that that um, escape when their when their zoo is blown up in war and have to find their way across a war torn country to this um, uh, legendary animal sanctuary called Animal Kingdom. And so it's a really heartfelt story, and um, it's very much in line with with um, how the Pixar stories work. Is it available now? Can it be read? Can it be purchased? We've just finished it, and um, we're sending it out to agents. And here's a funny little story I can end with is that we sent it. <clears throat> uh, we've just been sending it out, trying to get um, a literary agent uh, in, involved with it. Which, and we, the, one of the first ones that read the whole manuscript wrote back and said, you know, the story is really something that has this really classic feel to it. Like, um, and it's very cinematic and it has a classic feel like um, Dumbo or, or The Incredible Journey. Um, and um, uh, she said, I, I, I sobbed at the end and I'm going to pass on it because it's too old fashioned for this, for this market. And uh, okay, well, let me, see if I can sort that out, but um, it'll find its way out there. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I'm very proud of What's it. What's wrong with old-fashioned? See, I'm, in, I'm offended don't... on your behalf. Gee, Denise, <laughs> I will I accept your 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 feelings. But, you know, uh, anyway. so many of the, the, the stories that grab us and stay with us are old-fashioned. I don't know by design, but they they speak to something to uh, in us that I think I'm going to stutter here. I'm trying to figure out what I want to say, but they speak to us at a almost a cellular level: good versus bad, mm-hmm. you know, high versus low. 
things that we were taught mm-hmm. as children, you know, things that we know really to be true. What is wrong with old fashioned? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why well that's why we we always go back and love classic stories and classic, you know, books and movies because they have that. They 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 don't go in and out of fashion um with with the time. They they uh and I think, you know, the Pixar movies are like that and I think this book is like that, Journey to the Kingdom and that um um that it's a story with heart, you know, like those those classic the classic films that um that you could relate to, you know, fifty years from now. So. Oh yeah. I mean, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz. You watch mm-hmm. those when your children, they don't ever leave you. And frankly, I don't yeah. know if anybody hates them. I just don't. So she's wrong. She's just wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't wait Thank to read you. it when you've got yeah. it where you can, you know, send it out or you can send out a, a you know, pre, pre-publishing pre um, book. I'd love to read it if you don't mind. I would love to have you read it, Denise. Oh, good. And I will, talk too. To Mark. Say it again. I'm sorry. I'll talk to Mark, my writing partner, and see when we could do that. We're we're doing some, some little revisions right now, so... Uh, but thank you for your support. Appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. Listen, we've only got a couple more minutes. Um, and I, you, we were we started out talking about business, and so much of what you were sharing today applies to business. It really does. Mm-hmm. You know how you operate, how how you tell stories, how you share with people, how you work with people. Steve Jobs is that's an amazing story. I just didn't know that. So right now, when you're working, you're focusing on writing, repairing, and developing stories and scripts for all genres of live-action projects and animated features and shorts. So yes. you're working and hard. Also, I mean, go ahead. I've also worked for, um, I did um, worked on a story, uh, origin story for a character for Ogilvy Paris on their Lou Cookie campaign, where they had the, the king and uh king of lou and and uh that was fun to do now i'm consulting on a documentary so it's all storytelling and um i think you know for in business that you mentioned this you were just talking about you know how people work together having a, a common goal to get to get it right and giving them the respect and the um uh the room to to get the the best out of people um, and you just you can see from from those the products what was produced in those early days how that paid off. Absolutely. Well, listen, you have sixty seconds. I told you this is fast a fast sixty minutes. Do you have anything else you want to share with the audience before I reluctantly let you go? Oh, um, well. Uh, I don't. I don't want to start on another um, idea, but I just. I just. Um, part of the, just the, you know working with people and stories. It's you know they're very vulnerable and how we treat each other, and those you know being creative and with other people's ideas is really 
is really important, I think. You know, when I work with people, um, and there are different levels, you know, I just look for what's good in the story and and what they have. Even if it's sometimes it's a big mess, I try to find something that's working, something, the elements that are strong and vivid and true, and, and try and nourish them. And, and I point out what I love and respond to, try to shed light on those things and and um, and encourage them and, you know, play with that, go with that, develop that, and um, come back with your ideas and let's see where to go from there. I love that. Well, it has been, where can people find you before I ask any more questions? Where can they locate you? They can locate me at um, uh, story-repair.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, uh, but uh, through the website, there's a there's a way to contact me. Um, it's story story dash repair dot com, okay. and that tells all about what I do. It, and yeah, it does. It's a great website. Thank you, thank you, Denise. Oh, Will, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for for sharing all these terrific stories and. Seriously, I don't drink coffee, but I just drank a big old cup of tea, but my brain is going zit, zit. I'm scribbling down notes. I've got so many ideas. Like for the longest uh, kind of time, I had no idea I was a creative, but now that I do know that about me, when I listen absolutely. to people like you, my brain just, I can hear it just firing. I mean, it's like a, uh, my hair is curling on, you know all by itself. It's like these little zips are sending my curls up into the stratosphere. I'm very curly here. But thank you. So great to hear. Thank you. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, I just put my hand on my head and I can feel my hair moving around because my brain activity is just on fire (laughs) right now listening to these stories. But it has been wonderful chatting with you and I really look forward to reading the book. So do me a favor, once that book is out into the wild, come back. Come back to the show. I'd love to, Denise. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Well, listen, thank you, everybody. Before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes, Amazon Prime, Audible, Spotify. We're everywhere. You can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey and go look for Will right now before you forget. Will, thank you. Thank you, Denise. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.